Amen. Well, last Tuesday was a day of celebration for many of you, any of you who are students. Well, almost all of you got the day off from school. Those of you who are teachers got the day off from school with the snow day. I thought of that early in the morning as I cleared my vehicle and made my way to work, when, remembering fondly the days when snow days used to mean something. And they don't mean anything anymore. It just means that I'm jealous of all of you who get the surprise day off for that day. I'm sure all of you students used it well. You studied ahead and you worked around the house and did chores and didn't goof off at all. I actually got a little glimpse of a snow day because it was still bad enough Tuesday night that my whole string of meetings that I was supposed to have Tuesday night got canceled. So I got to stay home on Tuesday night. And what did I do with my Tuesday night? Well, I did get to tune into the second half of the uh, State of the Union address. That's how us old people find excitement on surprise nights off, right? We tune into the State of the Union address. You know, once a year, once a year the president gets to stand up in front of all the leaders and is televised to the whole country and, and gets to share his overall perspective on how we're doing together. How this, this union of states is getting along. And sometimes, if you watch these, sometimes they're very positive, right? We're doing great. Well done, everybody. And sometimes they're, they're kind of challenging of places we need to do better. I think the overall message that President Obama gave us on, on Tuesday night was everything's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. As he looked out over the nation, as he looked out over the world, he gave a reassuring message of hopefulness. Okay, and from the very moment that his speech ended, they started debating whether that was true or not, and I turned the TV off as quickly as I could. Um, but it made me wonder, watching that State of the Union address, it made me wonder, what would it be like if God, once a year, came and stood in front of a microphone and, and televised himself all over to the nation, and he gave a State of the Kingdom address. He looked out to all of us and said, let me tell you how, the, how I see the kingdom is doing today. What would he say about the present kingdom? What would, he, what would he say about the future, about the years to come, of how the kingdom of God is doing here in this world? What would we as his people need to hear from him as our commander-in-chief? We don't really need to wonder because he did exactly that. He gave his people a state of the kingdom address, and we're, we're going to read a part of it this morning. We haven't named it the state of the kingdom address. We've named it the book of Revelation. It's found in the very back of your Bibles, and we're going to listen to part of it. This is where we get to hear God's message about the state of his kingdom now at the moment when he wrote it, but the state of his kingdom for the future as well. And so here at the end of our, of our four-week villains series, we need to hear God's message to us about the ultimate villain, about the ultimate villain who is the mastermind behind all other villains fighting against the kingdom of God. We need to hear God's plan for Satan. For this arch enemy of his and of ours. We need to hear what God has to say. Because as we noted throughout this series. The spiritual battle. That we are facing day in and day out. Is still very very real. For you and for me. 
Satan is still doing battle against us. The enemies in our lives are real. And we need direction. We need encouragement. We need the truth that God gives in the middle of the spiritual battle that each of us is engaged in right now. Because honestly, there are times when we can't help but wonder about the future of the kingdom of God, right? It would be easy to imagine that if God came and stood in front of a microphone and, and told us about the state of his kingdom right now, that there would be some pretty pessimistic stuff that he'd say. They'd say, this kingdom is broken. This world is broken. And there's a lot wrong, people. Right? In the church, in society, you know, society is becoming more and more secularized. The church is getting sidelined more and more, and it seems like the influence of God is less and less. It seems like young people are leaving the church, and, and there's new priorities in life, priorities like family and sports and work that now rank above the kingdom of God and, and his priorities of life, and, and they're eroding the kingdom. And... and and we look at what's going on and we can't help but wonder about the future of the kingdom of God. And there's times if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, which we often aren't because we want everybody to think we've got our lives all put together, right? We, are, we aren't always honest with each other, but if we were, I think almost all of us would say we can't help but wonder about our own faith future. Our doubts our struggles, they're real. And in our daily lives, as Satan batters us again and again and again, in whichever way he's choosing to batter you and me, it feels like we're losing. Our bodies are failing and death is crouching at the doorstep, step, either our own or someone we love and it hurts. Our minds deceive us with, with the darkness of depression or, or the heaviness of our hearts or, or paralyzing anxiety or the overwhelming discouragement and disappointments of life and it hurts and we feel weak. Or maybe it's in our relationships as our relationships seem to crumble around us. Marriage is difficult. Children, grandchildren are living, out, they're living their lives out of our control but not out of our concern. Maybe it's in your friendships, friendships that are difficult, shaken, shaky, maybe painful. And some of us feel like we're about to crumble and we wonder how long can we stand strong with God? Right? We're in the middle of a spiritual battle and it feels like Satan just might be winning. That is exactly the feeling that a small band of believers in the first century were feeling. And they needed to hear God's state of the kingdom address. And they received it. They received, for the first time, this book of Revelation. We're going to listen to chapter 17 this morning. You want to open your Bibles, turn to page 1202 way at the back of your Bibles Revelation 17 but before we read those 18 verses of that chapter we need to understand the purpose of this book first because 
We so often mistake its purpose, and when we get this purpose wrong, then we get its words wrong and its meaning wrong. Okay, this, this revelation from God was given to the Apostle John. And he was to give it to these struggling believers who were desperate for any good news, who were desperate for any kind of encouragement that they could get. You see, already in this first century, these, these new believers, this brand new church, was hiding underground. It was a church that was under oppression, Right? And, and they were about to face, God knew it, and they probably realized it too, they were about to face a time of desperate persecution. Right? This is a time when the Roman Empire, right? the Romans ruled the world. And the Roman emperors were beginning to believe, to deceive themselves, and believe that they were gods themselves. And they were about to declare that everybody in their empire must bow down and worship them. And Satan is about to raise up historically horrible villains with names like Nero and Domitian. And these villains would take great joy in the execution and the torture of Christians, of Jesus' followers who refuse to bow their knee to the emperor. They will turn the destruction of the church into entertainment in the Colosseum where the lions are going to feast on their bodies. And that is personal parties where Christians will become the torches lighting the patios. They will, those two men will line the roads to Rome with crosses with the bodies of Christians hanging on them. And these believers are struggling to hold on. As you can imagine, they're, they're facing significant doubts. Is this really worth it? Is Jesus really king? Is following him really worth this? Does God really win? Because it certainly doesn't look like it. In their first century battle, they do not need a message to help them predict the future. As we so often think the book of Revelation is about, right? It's there to help us predict the year and the time and the date. That's not the point. They need a message from God encouraging them to hold on, to stay faithful to him. They need a message from God telling them that in their battle against this ultimate villain and the villains in their lives, God wins and they win. And that's exactly what God tells them here in Revelation chapter 17. Okay, we're going to read that chapter. Re remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic. It's, it's almost a kind of code that as Christians they would understand and the Romans who might read it wouldn't comprehend. So, so through all these maybe confusing images, God's message comes clear. That's what we're going to hear this morning. Listen to, to the picture that God gives to these desperate believers in chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you. The punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has yet to come. But when he does come, he must reign for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is now going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and their authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beasts their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. What a strange picture. What a strange chapter. And what a powerful message. So, so through John, God shows them a woman and a beast. And, and they're the main characters in this chapter and in this story. And, and he says that the woman is a prostitute. A shocking and yet very appropriate term here. It's, it's a sexual term, right? Someone who sells their most intimate expression of love that's meant for only that one that they love for a lifetime, who, someone who sells that intimate expression of love for money. Well, calling her a prostitute here in this chapter isn't about sex. This time it's about worship. This woman has sold the most intimate expression of, of, of love meant only for God. And she sold that worship to another. She's given her heart to Satan, to the power of evil, for the riches and the status and the power and the prestige in this world that he has to offer. She has chosen to saddle up on the beast, Satan himself. In return for her heart that she gives him, she receives all the satisfactions and all the pleasures of this world that Satan has to give. 
She's dressed in purple and scarlet, clothes of royalty. She's adorned with precious gems, valuable gems. She has all the wealth and, and money to burn. It says that she's drinking deeply from the golden cup of life, pursuing anything in this world that will bring her pleasure and power and wealth. And, and John tells us that she's doing this all at the expense of those who follow God. At your expense and my expense, she's drunk on the blood of the saints. This woman, simply put, is all the villains in this book. She's all the villains in the history of this world who have stood against the purposes and the plans of God in the name of evil. She is all of them wrapped up into one. And she's also, she's also the villains who stand against God still today. Right, the enemy that last week, if you were here, the enemy that you are encouraged to identify and name in your own life. Right? Did, did you do that? Did you identify the villain that, that Satan has sent to do battle with you? The villain that Satan has sent to keep you immobilized and to pull you away from God. Who is she in your life? Maybe she's doubt and discouragement and fear. It's the enemy of doubt, discouragement, and fear that keeps you from moving forward for God's purposes. Is she the pain of disease or maybe even death that leaves you only angry with God? Is she, is she pride and arrogance and selfishness that leads you to care more about building your own kingdom than about God's kingdom? Or, or maybe, maybe like like the people in this first century, maybe a human face comes to mind. Maybe God has given you a villain, an enemy, somebody who's pulling you away from God. Maybe somebody who's betrayed your trust and broken your heart. Maybe somebody, a godly person who turned on you and abused you. Maybe somebody who's tempted you and led you astray and you can see their face. This woman in chapter 17 is all of those very real villains who have hurt us and who break us and who stand in the way of our faithfulness to God and his purposes. All of them wrapped up into one person, one image. And God's message to these first century believers, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with real villains who, who are going to persecute them and and torture them, and maybe even kill them and the people that they love. And his message to you and me, still standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with real villains in our lives that are holding us back from God's purposes, his message clearly here is, they lose. They will lose. These enemies in our lives are real, yes, but they will not win because the price that these villains must pay for their alliance with the beast that we see in verses 15 through 18, we see the price that they pay. This beast that has brought her great power now brings her great defeat. This beast that carried her to the pinnacles of, of, of pleasure and power and position ultimately bucks her off his back and tramples the life out of her and eats her for dinner. God is making it clear. He's saying, know that there is a price to be paid for selling your souls 
to the evils of this world, even if what they give you in this life seems so glorious, there's a price to be paid. Because the soul that you sell is the soul that you will lose when the final bill comes due. And, and this beast, Satan himself, the ultimate villain, right? The one who seems so powerful and, and so invincible here and so indestructible and seems that way in our lives, right? Well, if you have your Bibles open yet, peek ahead just a couple chapters with me to Revelation 19. Turn to Revelation 19. Here, here in this chapter, verse 11, we see a new, a new person ride onto the scene here. It's the rider on the white horse. It's Jesus Christ returning again, this time not as a humble child, this time as a warrior king, as a Messiah coming for his victory. And listen to that final battle, starting in verse 19. Just read that last paragraph. It says, then I saw the beast, okay, the beast that we were just talking about in chapter 17. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped him, his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So God's story, God's story way back in Genesis starts in a garden with a snake, right? That snake has grown to be more than a snake. Now it's a beast. Now it's a dragon. And in the end, that dragon is crushed, thrown into the fiery lake of, of sulfur, defeated finally. Yes, yes, Satan strikes Jesus' heel, but Jesus crushes his head. Know that. So God's message here to his people is bold and it's clear. And you look through all the symbolism that so often trips us up, up and so often distracts us from the main message. Look through all that symbolism, imagery, peel away to the basic message. And God's message to these first century believers and God's message to us as 21st century believers is God wins. God wins and Jesus wins and yes, the enemies are real, but God's victory is just as real. And now in the middle of our lives, we can look forward to it. We can look forward to that victory because it gives us courage and strength and endurance for the present. That's the way it so often works in our lives, right? If we can see the end of something, if we know the end, we can get through the present, right? If we know there's healing coming at the end, we can get through the treatments and the surgeries. If we know a baby's going to be born, we can get through the long pregnancy and the delivery. If we know that, that graduation's almost there, we can get through that senior year when we just want to be done, right? Well, God graciously shows us, his people, the end. Yes, right here and right now, there are villains that are fighting against us. As we've learned over the past four weeks, that enemy is real. Satan is at work 
in your heart and your life trying to bring pain, trying to bring doubt, trying to bring fear, trying to pull you away from God or at least stop you from moving forward in the kingdom of God, at least freeze you where you are, immobilize you. And that suffering, that pain, that battle is real. Jesus told us it would be. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Okay, Satan's going to work on you. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, take heart. I have overcome this world. And he goes on to assure us that Jesus says, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, that God has given me, but I will raise them up on that last day. In other words, the victory is yours too. Yes, the enemies are real, but we cannot forget the victory that is just as real. And those who remain faithful are sealed against that spiritual harm. They're vindicated when Jesus comes again. The wicked will forever be destroyed, and God's people will share in victory forever and ever. Amen. That's exactly the message that these first century believers desperately needed to hear as they absorbed the painful blows from Satan's latest villains. They needed to hear, God wins and you win. And that's the message you and I need to know. You and I need to hear as we stand toe to toe with the villains in our lives. God wants you desperately to know how it, how it all ends. He wants you to know that the villain standing against you will lose. They will lose everything. And Satan himself will be defeated once and for all. And God who wins will stand you right next to him, victorious. That's the encouragement that we need. Not only to stay faithful today in those times of discouragement, but that is the encouragement we need to empower you and to empower me to not just stand strong, but to move forward for God's kingdom purposes, for his glory. So we, we've spent the last four weeks looking at villains who have, who have stood against the kingdom of God. We've been encouraged to face our own villains, to identify them, to name them. It's a frightening task. It really is if we take it seriously. Because our spiritual battles are real. And the stakes are high. I know we prefer to go through life forgetting about those spiritual battles. Just pretend like, pretend like they don't exist, but they do. Satan's doing his worst. And every single one of us will question. We will doubt. We will wonder. We will wonder about the future. We will question whether a lifetime of faithfulness is worth the cost. We will be tempted at points when it gets so hard to simply give up. To simply give in. And it's at moments like those, that you and I need to tune in to God's state of the kingdom address, where you and I need to hear from him 
the hopefulness, the assurance that he gives. Yes, the battle is real, but so is the victory. Even when you can't see it, it's real. God wins. And when we believe that message from God, our commander-in-chief, it gives us the courage to stay faithful. It gives us the courage to, to move forward in confidence for the kingdom of God. And so along with the Apostle Paul, who stood toe-to-toe with villain after villain after villain after villain and stayed faithful through it all. Along with the Apostle Paul, we can declare, thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate that victory in prayer. Would you join me? Father God, we thank you For the promise of victory that is ours. For the promise of victory that we know is waiting. You will come. You will make right all the wrongs. You will heal all the hurts. You will come in grace and mercy and justice. And we long for that day, Lord. We long for that day when all this world will see you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Honestly, Father, we long for that day partly because we're weary, partly because we're tired, partly because this battle that we fight is real and Satan is doing his worst in our lives. And I know there's some in this room who are discouraged, who are weary of staying faithful to you who are ready to give up and give in, who are wondering if it's really worth it, if you, God, are really worth it. In the midst of our very real battles, Father, give us a glimpse of what waits. Reassure us again that you win and we win with you. So, Father, give us the courage to stand firm. Whatever challenges Satan might throw our way. And give us the confidence to move forward for your kingdom purposes. Ushering in your victory.